Welcome to the Culture of Leadership. We have conversations that help you develop and become a more confident leader. Whether you're an executive seeking to enhance your leadership capabilities or a team member looking to contribute more effectively, this episode will provide valuable insights into how you can be the leader your company needs. This is my conversation with Robert Jordan, a leadership development expert and creator of the FABS Leadership Assessment. We'll dive into the four dominant leadership styles that FABS identifies, fixer, artist, builder, and strategist, and explore how each one can benefit a company in the right situation. Robert will share insights on the strengths and weaknesses of each style and how individuals can leverage their dominant style while developing skills in other areas. This is the Cultural Leadership Podcast. I'm Brendan Rogers. Sit back and enjoy my conversation with Robert. What is the difference between leadership styles and personality styles? Leadership style is something that we coin to talk about how exceptional leaders have developed a process, approach, and a system that develops over time. Personality, you know, as everybody knows it, that's universal among all of us. And at this point, our research is not complete between the four styles that we're going to talk about and personality. There are traits that we link to each of the four, fixer, artist, builder, and strategist. All of this is still, from a scientific point of view, I would say in the testing stage, which is why I'm glad, Brendan, that you took the assessment and uh, we can talk about that. Absolutely, mate. When you say that the research is not complete, what what research are you undertaking to try and identify linkages? The book that you know we, we're talking about, Right Leader, Right Time, is based on 7,000 executives from 50 countries essentially showing up on our doorstep over the past decade. The reason those executives showed up is we run a company called Interim Execs, We are a matchmaker around the world. Organizations show up that have a leadership need. And if we can, we are making a match between an organization and someone in the C-suite, CEO, CFO, CIO, or a team. In the process of meeting all of these executives, we developed ranking and scoring and screening. And we had two discoveries from that. One was not so good. One was that the majority of executives showing up from around the world, we're having careers and leadership experiences that you would describe as okay or pretty good, but you wouldn't describe them as great. The flip side was that if you looked at the top two, three, maybe 4% of leaders, these are exceptional people having incredible careers. And among them, we spotted these four distinct styles of leadership that we labeled fixer, artist, builder, and strategist. So our research thus far is based on a set of a couple thousand executives as opposed to something larger, which is why, along with the book, we launched a free three-minute assessment. It's called FABS. It's short for F-A-B-S, Fixer Artist Builder Strategist, FABS Leadership Assessment. And that's to put more science behind this. All right, mate. So let's tell us, you tell us more about the fabs, the fixer, the artist, the builder, and the strategist. Give us a bit of an overview of what those styles are about. Fixer is, as the name implies, the energy of turnaround. Fixer is the person that has to run into the burning building. 
Now, just to be clear for all your listeners, Brendan, all leaders are a combination of abilities. We all bring every capability we have to bear to be a, a good or a great leader. So we're not trying to pigeonhole someone and say, oh, you're a fixer and that's all you are. We think it is matters of degree. What we would say is that exceptional leaders usually exhibit a dominant style or a dominant and a secondary, and that over the course of a successful career, they tend to keep on reinforcing their best abilities. They tend to get better and better at collaborating with others whose strengths are complementary. So all leaders have to solve problems, right? But for the fixer, this is how they get their energy. It's not just they got to run into the burning building to save everyone. They need to keep doing that over and over again. So to give you an example in the world, you know, everybody's heard of this huge crypto exchange called FTX that blew up. As you and I recording this was about three months ago that it went into bankruptcy. And immediately a CEO was appointed, a guy named John Ray. And if you look at his background prior to FTX, where was he? He was at Enron, which years ago was a similar kind of major disaster in the world. And so a guy like John Ray, this is what he does. He is attracted to disaster after disaster. That is where he thrives. Yeah, it's interesting. Before you go into the other three, is there a a need or have you identified a need for one of these four styles more often than, say, the other three? I would say that they're all situational. It's simply a function of the modern world that now these different styles and people can be brought to bear in different situations. A book like this could not have been written 30 years ago. Because 30 years ago, you know, for our parents and our grandparents, the way that you worked in your career was in a lot of cases, if you work for a big company, you wanted to stay there your whole life. That was the nature of employment. That's not the way that employment works for most people around the world anymore. You're going to have a career now, you know, or children have careers now that are going to be much more varied and where you're moving around more and it's not going to necessarily look like the same ladder, you know, that you used to climb in previous generations. Are you saying, Bob, just to for me to try and understand that comment, that there are, with the more movement that's happened over the recent decades, that's enabled people to show more of their style and, and be attracted to more of these opportunities, which has created these uh, the view of these leadership styles, as an example? Absolutely, yes. Look at an organization like LinkedIn, the founder, Reid Hoffman, he, you know, I understand his standard speech to new employees. It wasn't welcome. You're going to be here the rest of your career. No. What he would say was welcome. For many of you, this is a tour of duty, essentially. And we want to make that the greatest experience we can for you and for LinkedIn as an organization. But that acknowledgement that most people were not going to spend their careers there but just think about how different that is from prior generations, the way you would think about employment. More and more, you know, a lot of jobs become more projectized. And there are industries where this is already the case. If you look at, for example, how do movies get made? You know, a movie is the coming together of hundreds of different specialties, people. There are actors, but behind 
the camera, there are all kinds of functions and producing and, and the key grip and the finance and everything. And what we are all used to around the world is that these professionals will come together, make a great product, and when that is done, they will disband and move on to their next project. It doesn't mean that their careers have ended. It's the opposite. Far from it. They make a great product, and that is their credential to move on and continue to do great work. And a lot of that has become the way that work is now done around the world. I do love that term, tour of duty. Does I think even just in what you explained there, respects the individual employee a lot more rather than having the the expectation, hey, we're gonna we're gonna have you for life. But you know, we we acknowledge that this is part of a journey in yours, and we hope that you're with us for a period of time, and we hope to make that experience fantastic for you. But even that, to me, just hearing that, and I hadn't heard it before, it feels like it's more of a trustworthy approach, and it, and it makes me feel like I want to trust the person more just in them sharing that. Yes, I, I think there's also good news in terms of the transportability of your own expertise. This is new. This is not something that we're all used to, but it's here. And if anything, what we've all gone through in terms of COVID and pandemic simply accelerated it because there was so much more remote work, which gave everybody more a taste of of, that they could be successful in career and productive and not necessarily, for example, be tied down to an office or one location. You're seeing this in survey research now that more people find a sense of connection, ironically, and connection to mission of their organization while they get to be remote. And in some intuitive way, it doesn't make sense. You think, wait, for us to form a cohesive team, we all need to be in the same place. That's not the way a lot of workers think anymore. Absolutely not, mate. Where, uh, Where I live on the central coast of New South Wales, a beautiful, beautiful place. And we have seen a mass exodus of people coming, particularly from a place called the Northern Beaches in Sydney, which is a beautiful lifestyle as well, but a hell of a lot more expensive. So they're coming up here, they're doing remote work. They can still go into Sydney a couple of days a week, but they've got the lifestyle and they've got a lot more money in the bank once they've sold their property in Northern Beaches and come to the coast. So we've definitely experienced, got a lot busier on the coast, I have to say. The artist, the artist sees the world as a blank canvas or a piece of clay to be molded. The example in the book, and I I keep using this, and sooner or later I'm going to have to stop, but, you know, the standout example in the world today is still Elon Musk. And this is because the creation of Tesla, the creation of SpaceX, and the Boring Company, these are world-changing innovations. You know, most car companies around the world are now geared for a completely EV, electric vehicle future. You can thank Elon Musk for that. There's really no one else that was pioneering or is outspoken 20 years ago. And that's a huge impact. That's an incredible kind of innovative spirit. As you and I are recording this, Brendan, we're, we're also at about three months in with Elon's ownership of Twitter. And that is not a great example of, in that case, fixer energy. You know, Elon may be able to get away with what he's, what he's doing but for everybody who's listening here who is wired as a fixer, loves turnaround, that's not your playbook. Not my playbook, not your playbook. But you look at what he's done, or you look at someone like Steve Jobs or Thomas Edison, that's artist energy at work. Artist energy is the renegade. It's probably the person on your team who's more rebellious. They're not necessarily the most popular. They, they're not always agreeable. 
but they have this ability to continually generate new ideas and create these, these discontinuous leaps that will get a team or an organization past stagnation. Could you say that I'm not aware that you know Elon personally, I certainly don't, so we may be dealing in hypotheticals, but could you make a judgment that Mr. Musk is maybe not as self-aware as what he needs to be in taking on a challenge like Twitter and the sort of leader he would need to be? Well, actually, I did meet him for a grand total of 60 seconds. I, I won't say this Did you get him to do the FABS experience. assessment? <laughs> What's that? Did you get him to do the FABS assessment? Say, hey, mate, this could have helped you. What, what I did get to ask him, I, it was at a private event, so there weren't a huge number of people around. And at the time, SpaceX had blown up four major rockets on the launch pad, and NASA, you know, the U.S. Uh, Aeronautics Commission, had just awarded SpaceX a $1.7 billion contract. And I just thought, this is amazing. And so, you know, he, he's meeting, and there were a couple people, and I said, you blew up four rockets, and you got a $1.8 billion contract. How did you do that? <laughs> and his answer was completely wonderfully inarticulate. I, I couldn't tell you what his answer was. It just, you know, his, his genius is, is what it is. It's pretty remarkable. Yeah, special person. But Bob, I feel like you're avoiding the question. Tell me about your view on Elon's self-awareness. Was he not as self-aware as what he needed to be in taking on this challenge at Twitter? Oh, not at all. I mean, my, you know, my own opinion on it is, is it was the most boneheaded move you know, Elon, one of his things is what he calls first principles, which I think is wonderful. It's this idea of getting back to the physics or the core kind of bedrock foundational engineering of something. So, for example, in thinking about how do you make a battery more affordable and longer range for cars, you know, he's said, well, look at the base materials that are in it, the cobalt, the titanium, the nickel, and what are they priced at to try to figure it out? That's a that's a great way of thinking in terms of first principles for anyone for their business, right? Because we put all of these beliefs or ideas on top of our own businesses that may or may not be true, right? And so, so this works great for physics and engineering problems, such as how do you make a great electric vehicle? How are we going to get people to Mars, right? How are you going to create a you know vacuum-based tunnel that'll move people at 700 miles an hour. That's great. Twitter was not any of that. Twitter was something that personally he liked to use. It's questionable if it was really broken. It's highly nuanced, and at its core, it's based on all of us. It's a very messy, human-based thing. And so I don't think that was um, absolutely the same example as what he was trying to do. And I don't Again, I don't think that that what he is doing is a playbook for any of the rest of us in terms of how to uh, fix an organization. You want my prediction? At some point, he's already said, I'll take a vote of all my followers should I find a CEO. That was his way of saying that this was not a great move. And my prediction is that if the markets do okay this year, you're going to see Twitter you know, go relist as a public company. And, and that's his, his gracious or graceless way of, of getting out of it. I can't see Tesla is 20 years old. SpaceX is 20 years old. There is no way that Elon survives 
in leadership at Twitter for 20 years. It's impossible. The EU alone will prevent it. <laughs> yeah, fair point. Time, time will tell as it always does. You made a reference to industry and sort of career-type roles. Engineer was the one you mentioned. Have you, in any of the research you've done, have you linked certain roles, professions to the type of leadership styles? It's a great question, and, and we have not linked it. We think that these styles apply across any industry or specialty. This idea of leadership style is something new. And so we're really starting on an exploration here with this. We see this and we're starting to describe it and we can describe some of the attributes. But look, I'll be very eager to hear, you know, from any of your listeners if they take the assessment, whether, you know, they think they've been accurately portrayed. So I'll give you an example of a trait. So, Brendan, we've talked about fixer and we think fixer is a linear kind of ability. And what I mean by linear is that Take the example of FTX, the guy that's in there trying to save whatever assets he can. I can pretty much guarantee you that John Ray is not engaged in any other project or company while he's working on FTX. It tends to be that fixers are all consumed by one organization, by one thing they're working on. The flip side is that artists cannot work on one thing at a time to save their lives. And Elon is a great example of that that he needs this diffusion of energy, if you will, between SpaceX Boring Company and Tesla. And that is something we see as we're measuring this across artist leaders that's true for pretty much all of them. They, they need parallel. They cannot stand this linear. The same things apply when we talk about builder and strategist. That builder. creativity side, they need to feel like they're creating things. Yes, Let's give us an overview of Builder. Builder is the energy that can take the small, emerging, nascent product, service, team, organization, set of clients to market domination. Each one of these styles has what you could think of as a mantra. And for Builder, that that mantra is market. They have market domination on the brain. You could also look at it as a scale. If you think about someone who's a a really great leader who took a product and took it from small and took it big and took the company public or sold it, what tends to happen with that leader after they do that is they need to leave, they need to rotate off and start again, whether it is a related industry or something new, but they need this ability to build to scale. And when it reaches scale, it's probably no longer of interest to them. So I know most people in business, we all love this. I'm a builder, and it is true. I mean, you you have to have builder energy in you. But we mean a specific definition here of builder, which is that it has this repeat focus on process and people and, and just how you put all of this together to create a great product. And once it's dominant, move on. I probably found Builder the, I won't say most relatable because it's not where my style ended up and I'm comfortable with the style I did end up with. But if it wasn't talking more about market domination and that sort of view, what you just said about sort of process and structures and foundations and building, that part feels like me. But I've never been a person to feel like market domination and you know taking something from here to there is the is the end goal and what gives me passion, what drives me. 
Well, one one thing, Brendan, for yourself would be, do you tend to work on one organization or project at a, at a time, or do you like multiple things going on at once? Or do you work with one company at a time, one project at a time, or do you like multiple? Are, are you tending to have lots of different projects, organizations, or clients going on at the same time? Yeah, multiple clients. Gotcha. Because the way we think this is, is that's more consistent with artist and strategist energy. Interesting. How far into your research are you with the, can we say, supplementary styles, the dominant style, but also, as you said at the top of the show, we're all, we've all got elements of each one. It's not about, hey, we're just in this box and that's it. But are you close to getting a, a secondary leadership style for people? Actually, I could ask you this as well, because you took the uh, FABS assessment. It is going to return for people. You take it, it's about three minutes, and it, it will instantly then return for you a dominant style and a secondary. And, you know, then we are asking for feedback. The, the most recent uh, version of it, once someone gets their result, they get descriptions of these styles. And then this question, did we get it right? Yes, no. Click yes, click no. So, you know, one way that we look at this is um, consider DNA, right? All of biological life is based on just four proteins. DNA is made up of four nucleotides. That's it. But it's endless variation. So whether it's your Aunt Mary, you know, it's your your puppy, your cat, the oak tree outside your window, it's all just endless variation on four different uh, strings of, of proteins. And in a way, this is how we're thinking about leadership style, which is we're all wired in infinite variation. What we would say is, though, that exceptional leaders, they tend to have a dominant straight, uh, a dominant style, and that over time, exceptional leaders tend to reject more of what is not for their highest and best use. Highest and best use is a phrase we like using in the book. Yeah, I like it. Highest and best use, most effective use of time, I think. I have to say, if I, I must have missed it off the uh, secondary. I didn't notice the secondary at all. So uh, I might have to go back and take a look at that. But anyway, strategist. Tell me about the strategist. Strategist is the leader at scale. Strategist is the leader in a complex or a vast organization. Uh, one of the leaders we interviewed for the book, had been the undersecretary of the Department of Defense in the U.S. That's an organization with several million people. And when you hear a strategist talk about work, talk about leadership, that is radically different from fixers, artists, and builders. Strategists, like, for example, the leader we interviewed, they're talking about systems of systems. They're talking about influencing something where a one- or a two-degree shift in an organization can look initially not much different, but over time produce some vast effect. Strategist leaders talk about loyalty. They talk about having been mentored, about mentoring other people. It's about cross-training. It's about loyalty and longevity, typically within one or two organizations. That's very different language from fixer, artist, and builder. Fixer, artist, and builder, you know, to, to use a phrase from Stephen Covey, the author of Seven Habits, he had this phrase, personal span of control. Fixers, artists, builders, they tend to be leading in organizations where there are five people, 10 people, 
50 people, maybe 100 or 150. But generally, there's a personal relationship between those people, which is how trust is formed. That's how they get things done is because I know you and you know me. The strategist does not have that available to them. In a complex or vast organization with thousands tens of, or tens of thousands of employees, the way that you're going to exert influence and excel beyond your competitors, it is not going to be on personal, just on personal span of control. Very different mindsets, very different language. Who would be an example that people would know that would be a strategist in the world? Well, one of the great strategist leaders who just retired is Fred Smith. He was the founder of Federal Express, FedEx. You know, most leaders, they are what they are. And they're, you know, we're combinations of the four. But for example, I'm very strongly artist leader to my peril. It's great that I'm really creative, but that doesn't mean I'm the most effective person, even in my own company. And so I'm very aware that I have to collaborate like crazy in being trusted and trusting my partners to do far better than I can at what they're good at so that we have a a good organization. Fred Smith is one of the rare examples, I think. Uh, He just retired after 51 years. He founded FedEx 52 years ago, and he kind of rounded the bases. You know, you want American baseball parlance. He started as an artist because while he was in school, he wrote a paper thinking up this idea of overnight delivery of packages. You know, there are famous stories about him. He couldn't meet payroll when FedEx was a young organization. So he went to Las Vegas and successfully gambled so that he had enough cash to pay the employees. That's a fixer. That is fixer scrappiness on the brain. Certainly in terms of being a builder, thinking about how do you scale And in his case, country by country, how do you become dominant? How do you displace the state-mandated postal service? Uh, That's incredible. He arrived at strategist as his highest and best use, where you you have an organization with 250,000 employees around the world, operations in, what, 170, 180 countries. So a remarkable strategist. It was remiss. I didn't ask you for an example. You gave examples of the first two for people that we would know in the world. What about a builder? Builder is a lot harder because the examples tend to be localized because a lot of builders, they don't necessarily achieve Fred Smith um, fame because they do something great and it hits an IPO and then they want to do it all over again. And so they tend to be less known to the public. But I'll give you an example. If any of your listeners have ever uh, been to the U.S., Boston, occasionally been to Boston, and there is a dominant bakery in Boston. It's outstanding. And whoever started this bakery said, we're going to dominate the Boston market, the city and the suburbs. We're going to have the best product, but we're also going to be, we own it. And they're not in any other American city. I can't find this bakery anywhere else. And at the heart of that organization, that's a builder. That is a builder who's thinking, I'm going to own this market, not the world. I'm just going to be dumb in this market. A lot of, for example, if someone's a real estate developer, market domination on for those folks tends to be their town. And within a town, they want to be, for example, if you're a residential builder, the greatest 
developer in that town. So yeah, those tend to be more localized examples. We had a lot in the book, but a lot of those folks, I don't think your listeners would uh, necessarily know their names. The two that came to mind when you were explaining it was Bill Gates and Steve Jobs around market domination. I don't know if you know, what their other traits would be, but they're the two that just sprang to mind. Would you categorize those two gentlemen in that builder leadership style? Well, they certainly have incredible builder energy. In the case of Steve Jobs, art, artist, I think, was more dominant because of his level of disagreeableness and renegade. You know, at one point when, you know, they were starting the Macintosh division, he flew a pirate flag on the top of the building and it was kind of a, a message to the rest of Apple to go away. That's not necessarily builder energy. Bill Gates is another great example of, of all of these styles coming out. But ultimately, Bill Gates, I think, is strategist energy. To do what he did, you know, if all he was was a great programmer, we would never have heard about him. His ability to recruit other people who, in a lot of cases, were far better managers to negotiate with IBM early on. IBM, you know, the behemoth. And here, Microsoft was a little company with a piece of software called DOS. And he convinced IBM to put his software on their computers, their hardware, personal computers, first ones coming out, and let him keep the rights. I mean, that's just a sheer act of brilliant negotiation so it's, it exhibits, that shows exhibiting a lot of incredible qualities on his part. Is there one of the styles that is linked to longevity in a company? Boy, that's a great question. I don't know. I think regardless of the way that you are wired, you know, prior to this book, we had done a book where we interviewed 45 champion company founders. And to get into that book, to, to be interviewed, you had to launch, grow, and sell a company for $100 million or go public at $300 million. So we were self-selecting for longevity there. But as much as there were examples of leaders who could ride something out for many years, there was at least an equal number who were only on part of the journey. And, you know, they could be a great founder, and then they would leave. And, and that was it. And this was part of the spark for us to, to look at leadership style. Because, for example, there are many people who are not great company founders, but they are great taking the small team or product to a point of domination, which is what got us thinking about what is builder mode, which is not necessarily what the world considers as classic entrepreneurship. I think if I had to pick one just from a feeling, it feels like to me strategists might be one that has potentially more longevity. But like I said, it's just a it's just more a feeling attached to that rather than any hard data. The other comment I want to make is that thankfully for us and today and the world, that you are this artist type leadership style because quite possibly we wouldn't even be talking about this today if you didn't have this this level of creativity in you. Well it's kind of you to say that, yeah, there there's a crazy streak that says says, you know, said to my business partner, let's go spend six years on something that we have no idea if it'll ever come to fruition or if we're right or wrong. And, you know, then she's blank canvas, sure. mate. You're blank canvas. 
Blank canvas. <laughs> Blank canvas. Yeah. Yeah. And this is why we asked a, a number. We also interviewed a number of organizational psychologists in the book because it was basically one cra- question. Are we crazy? You know, we would present them with this framework and, you know, all their backgrounds were very rigorous and, you know, scientifically trained to look at, at objective research and to say, this is the thesis we have. This is what we're going to test out. Are we nuts? And um, luckily, we got a lot of validation uh, from folks that we were on the right track. Maybe they were just being nice. I don't know. Let's talk blind spots, mate. And let's go back to the, the first one you gave us a summary of, Fixer. What are the potential blind spots that a Fixer-dominated leadership style needs to be aware of? It's a great question, Brendan. Blind spots is one way of putting it. I always thought of, of leaders who run amok. And so, for example, Fixer Energy... Well, one of the sparks for this is is the prior book we did. One of the leaders, he said, you know, if I put a fixer into one of my companies and it's not broken, he'll break it just so he can fix it. And and when I heard that, I was it just I thought that was so intriguing. So fixer energy that is is unchecked. There's an example in in the U.S. It was a, a leader. His name was Al Dunlap. His nickname was Chainsaw Al. And he was brought in by the board of a company called Sunbeam. If you remember the maker of blenders and fans and and they hit on hard times. And so the board went to Chainsaw Al, who promptly came in and fired most of the staff. And it was too far. It was too much. Ultimately, in his turnaround work, he was accused of accounting fraud because he just there, there was there were no guardrails for his performance. And that's not a great playbook for fixers, you know, and and this is why the example of, you know, Elon coming into Twitter and immediately firing half the workforce, that's not the playbook most fixers use. So the fixers, in essence, are really people or leaders that could do absolutely anything to fix whatever's broken that could be within the realm of legal or not legal. Yeah, not, not even legal in many countries. You know, when you talk to fixer leaders and say, what's the first thing you do when you go in? What we would hear from everyone is you listen. There's no chainsaw. Elon went into Twitter day one with a sink, you know, sending a message. Great fixer leaders, when they go in, they go down onto the shop floor. They talk to to the people running the equipment. They go to the administrative assistants who've been discounted and overlooked for years, but they have all this institutional knowledge and they know all the secrets. You know, in organizations that are not doing well, it tends to be that the board and the management team are not listening to anyone else inside the organization. They're sealed in their own little world and they know everything that works and does not work, and yet they're in incredible trouble. You tend to hear fixers going in and trying to uncover all of this intelligence in an organization that tends to be overlooked. So listening is one of these key characteristics that irrespective of your style, that all of these fantastic leaders have as a starting point. Is that what you're saying? Well, for sure, Fixer. I'm not sure for artists, and, and I say this gently, lovingly as an artist, artist energy sometimes is, is running against everything which represents the status quo. And maybe it's not that it's not listening, but it's not active listening in the same way as, uh, you know, for example, fixer and strategist need 
need to listen and be present. There's a more distracted kind of thing going on for a lot of artist leaders that can still add up to effective performance, but it is not the same playbook. Where does that lead into the artist's blind spot? What do they be? What do they need to be mindful of? Well, the artist to be successful has to enlist and enroll other people. It's great to have creative ideas and you can have them all day long, but we're talking, this is matched with leadership. So that's how we're using this word. You could apply it in the, in the literal sense of an artist being a musician or a painter or a sculptor, which is you have to produce the work. It's not just the idea. It's the successful execution as part of the game. So in an organization for artist leaders, you still have to have this ability that you've come up with this leap, this thing no one else has, has thought up. You still have to enlist and enroll other people in the organization to get it done. Or if they don't get it, then, of course, there's always the entrepreneur uh, route. We're not saying all artists are entrepreneurs, though, but um, there has to be this ability at the end of the day for the artist to actually produce the work. So the creation, the idea side of that, and then creating something is a key element of the artist, but it doesn't always mean that they're very good at finishing whatever the idea and creation has started from. Yeah, part of, uh, you know, we identified these four styles. What we also saw were three commonalities between fixers, artists, builders, and strategists, which is we see this, this continual doubling down that as they discover they have these superpowers in one particular area, they keep reinforcing and reinforcing, and they start rejecting more of what does not fit that. What goes along with that is somebody becomes more confident in their abilities. If they're in a good leadership role is they become better at collaboration. Collaboration, you know, everybody says I'm a great collaborator and all of that. It's not actually true. When people are not confident in their own ability, they tend to try to do too much, try to be all things to all people. And that doesn't lead to great collaboration. You actually need to be confident in your own abilities to then recognize someone else on the team, that the thing at which they are genius, you got to let them run with the ball if the team is going to be highly effective. So I got that sort of discovery, and I guess I would put it into the self-awareness leading to confidence. Was there a third commonality? The third commonality, uh, the way we phrased it is uh, exceptional leaders don't hide, do not hide. Tell us more. What does that mean? I'll use a negative example, if I can, to make the point. There's a major bank in the U.S. called Wells Fargo. And uh, for a number of years, the way that they kept on increasing their sales every year was cross-selling. They cross-sold. In other words, if you had a checking account, they wanted to give you a credit card. If you had a credit card, they you know, wanted you to have another account. Well, they did this for many years. Their sales rose. And it turned out that millions of accounts were falsely set up. The customers never knew that the bank was opening new accounts and charging them money for more products. So the CEO of the bank gets hauled in front of the U.S. Congress, and he's on the witness stand. And they're asking him, you know, all of your quarterly earnings calls, they're all recorded, and you keep talking about your success, and it's due to cross-selling and all of that. And then it turns out millions of these accounts were falsified. The customers never agreed to them. You know, what of it? And the CEO said, it's not me, it's the board of directors. It's not my fault. 
Now, anybody that knows anything about business, even my daughters who are not in business, know that that's just not accurate. A board of directors is not setting tactical marketing strategy. It's not their job. Now, luckily, that individual was banned from banking after that. But that's an example of hiding. Effective leaders want to be held to account. And it is not that any of us succeed at everything or in all cases. We don't. But it tends to be that more effective leaders are more measured and holding themselves to account. And that their results, you can actually see what their performance is like. The flip side that we, that we see is the majority of leaders where they're doing okay but not great don't tend to have a lot of measurable results, not a lot of accomplishment they can point to. What's a blind spot area that the builder needs to be aware of, the builder blind spot? Early on for a builder, they tend to be very linear and you can have a lot of success with that. Sometimes their egos get to them the more that they've done that and they think, well, if I did one thing successfully, I can do 10 things simultaneously successfully. And that doesn't work as well for builders. Because again, we've, we've seen it tends to be more of a, a linear strategy. I'll give you another example of someone I admire greatly, but I think overextended as builder, who is um, Sheryl Sandberg, the former number two COO at Meta, used to be called Facebook. Sheryl Sandberg is, I think, by any definition, one of the greatest builders of the modern era. When she joined Facebook, it was a couple hundred employees. It was, I think, about $100 million in revenue, which sounds like a lot. But in the first seven years of Sheryl Sandberg being there, it went to 70,000 employees, and it went to $100 billion in revenue. That is a phenomenal example of building an organization. Unfortunately, she stuck around for actually 13, 14 years, and that was a builder too far. She had achieved market domination. It was pretty much a flawless track record. But then if you look at what happened in the next seven years, you had the Cambridge Analytica scandal. You had election interference claims. You had all kinds of negative feedback. She wrote some books that maybe put her too much into the public spotlight. And then, of course, you know, Facebook renames itself Meta and gets into VR. And I don't think that was really her energy there. And so I don't know what she would say, but as an observer, I would say, man, if you would have just been there those seven years, you took Facebook to market domination. And it's funny because when she joined, she said, I'm here for five years. She called the play herself and then it went too long. I don't know. What do you think of that as an example? I didn't know the name, but obviously know the company and some of those journeys. So I think it's a fantastic example. Again, it you know, if you're going to get the mind of of these people, I suppose, and maybe that's the opportunity for further conversation. But what it seems like in that example and some others you've shared, they they start out sort of knowing where their strengths and their motivations and their passions are and the type of leadership style, even if they haven't got this language around it. But something takes them further. It's like they're not aware enough to make that decision. It's like, you know, I've I'm there, I've done my job and now it's time to move on. Something Something's holding them back, making them comfortable. I don't know what it is. You got any thoughts? Well, there's a lot around confidence here. And, you know, your own self-discipline. You know, this book could not have, as I said before, it couldn't have been written 30 years ago because 
Because this idea that your own particular genius in the way you lead and your style, that you could express it in so many different ways in the world, it was not open to any of us in a prior generation. And now, because of the way work is organized around the world, it is. So you need to take that confidence into the marketplace. And this is what you see. And if you don't see it among, you know, our own cohort, you know, folks who've been in the workforce 20, 30 years, you are certainly seeing this in, in people who are new in the workforce. Because I heard one graduate describe this and said, my career is going to be long. It's not going to look like a ladder, you know, that traditional ladder. It's more of a jungle gym that you're, you're kind of looking for your moves and more of an exploration and that, and that that's not a bad thing. Yes, I think a lot of people can relate to that jungle gym journey. <laughs> Tell us about Blindspot. I'm the strategist. That was what the uh, my results came out as a strategist, my primary leadership style. What blind spot or blind spots do I need to be aware of, mate, and other strategists out there? I've had two ideas around this. Uh, one of them is that nameless, faceless bureaucrat who is within a vast organization with a lot of power, but absolutely no accountability. That is the worst expression of having power within a vast or complex organization. The other way you, you see it visibly, though, well, I'll give you an example. In the UK and Britain recently, a company called P&O Ferries, they ferry people and goods between the UK and the continent. And the uh, CEO fired 800 workers on a call. And um, that's illegal in the UK. So that achieved the twin distinction. He was hauled in front of uh, parliament and a member of parliament asking him, I'm paraphrasing here, but the question was, are you just incompetent or, or did you really intend to be evil here? That strategist kind of, of run amok, which is you, you lose your governor. You, you have this power and, and you start making these decisions that don't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense in, in that, you know, there's a safety element to running boats and keeping everyone safe. And so when you move from permanent workers who presumably are well-trained to temporary staff in those roles, you could say maybe safety will degrade. Mate, I worked for P&O, not P&O Ferry specifically, but a division of P&O for many years in my early days. Maybe that's where I built my strategist gene for, for good or bad. <laughs> yeah. I, look, I, I hope it's a great organization. I saw that story and I it just thought, oh. It was for me. Oh, oh, it was. Yeah. Anyway. That's, uh, wow. Interesting. Interesting. Mate, why is this work so important? Why are you doing it? Well, uh, first of all, the cautionary, the, the note to get out to people earlier in their careers, based on what we've seen among these thousands of executives, you know, who were okay, but not great, is that a lot of leaders actually try to be all things to all people. And it never works. And on the surface of it, you know, if you say that to someone, they're like, well, of course, you know, no one's all things to all people. Jack of all trades, master of none. Everyone denies it, but you see this in the results if they're only mediocre at best. So a message earlier on for folks, which is the unique kind of capabilities you have, the more that you discover that in your journey, the better, and to trust that. And it's not easy, and it takes a lot of courage. You know, because earlier on, 
you know, one of the prime messages we want to get out to the world is that exceptional leaders reject more of what is not for their highest and best use. Okay, that's very easy to say. When you were earlier in your career, that's nearly impossible to do. You're being ordered around by a boss. You need the money. You need the job. Reject. Impossible. But what we see is that over a course of a career, more and more as a person acquires experience, acquires confidence as they succeed, that they become much more directional and self-determining in what they're trying to do. One of one of the folks we quoted in the book said, just because you have a song to sing doesn't mean you don't have to learn how to sing it. So, so we're each on this journey. And you have that responsibility, but it's going to require courage to get to that thing. And what I, listen, what I hope for, Brendan, you know, folks have asked me, like, well, what should somebody do with this? My answer is have a conversation within your organization or your team. Because if you've learned, you know, for example, you know, if you're wiring as artist, fix or whatever it is, that this is genuinely who you are. Well, if you're on a team where everyone is actually trying to perform well, we'll make that assumption, then the more you know me, the better I'm going to perform. And the more I know you, the things that you love to do and you're great at, I, I need to pass the ball to you on those so that we as a team are going to excel more. Great question, great conversation, great example. Where do you hope this work is in the next two to three years? What what do you hope to have achieved with it? At what stage do you hope to be at? The truth of the matter is anybody that writes a book in business, if you did it because you're trying to make money, you're you're a fool. I have heard that a lot. Uh, yeah, that that's that that ain't the, the that ain't the plan. I'd very much hope that the Fab's leadership Fab's leadership assessment, you know, is out in the world and that uh, a lot of people have taken it and and that it's a benefit to them because they got some insight into themselves. And, you know, and it, it is something where we need help because that is informing for us to figure out how to refine this and make it better and put out more more information around what we've learned. We will put in the show notes the link to do the assessment and we'll push that out to our lists because I know, again, having done it myself, there's certainly a, a lot of relevance and people taking action and having a conversation around it is really, really important. So we will encourage that absolutely. Mate, I'm really keen to know in your journey of leadership, what's helped you to become this more confident leader? By far the most important thing is having great partners and staff and employees who are who are willing able and and just can tell it to me straight and i'm just i'm only effective because of the fact that i'm blessed and and uh, surrounded with such wonderful people i like it mate i've been listening to a guy out of the states on his podcast about some uh, entrepreneurial journey and some financial stuff and he talks about nobody is self-made if you think that, you're crazy because it's all the people you have around you and all the support and none of us are great at everything. So I love that example of what's helped become helped you become a more confident leader, mate. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for introducing me to the FABS leadership assessment and the model that you've come up with. Very relevant. I found it very enlightening for my own journey and being the strategist and where I 
think my strengths lie based on that. And I also do resonate with some of the other areas. So for me, they are sort of secondary or or other styles. So I know I'm going to actually start using this in my work. So um, with some of the, the leaders that I have, because I think there is some valuable conversation. So hopefully we can help you through the culture of leadership and you coming on and being a fantastic guest. We can help you get this out to the world a little bit more as well, because I certainly see some enormous value in it. Mate, I want to thank you for coming on. Thank you very much. And you've been a fantastic guest on the culture of leadership today. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Same, mate. How do you know if you're the leader your company needs? A great first step is to do the FABS leadership assessment and learn about your dominant and secondary leadership style. You can access this free assessment in the show notes. The FABS leadership assessment is a tool that can help you achieve a greater level of self-awareness, which is a critical element of becoming a more confident leader. These are my three key takeaways from my conversation with Robert. My first key takeaway, confident leaders develop their leadership roadmap. They developed a process, approach, or system that evolves over time. They exhibit a dominant leadership style that reinforces their best abilities. They recognize that leadership is situational and their styles vary based on the situation. Confident leaders create a leadership roadmap that allows them to showcase their credentials in different situations. My second key takeaway, confident leaders understand their blind spots. All leaders have blind spots and it's essential to identify and address them. Fixers, for instance, may dive in, break stuff, and try to fix it without considering the consequences. Artists may move against the status quo, but they need to enlist others to execute their vision. Builders may stay too long and let their ego get in the way, and strategists may become nameless and faceless bureaucrats. Confident leaders are self-aware and seek feedback from others to identify and address their blind spots. My third key takeaway, confident leaders act on self-assessments. They use tools like the FABS Leadership Assessment to become more self-aware of their leadership styles, strengths, and weaknesses. They have conversations with their teams to understand their leadership styles and how they can benefit the organization. They have great networks who will speak the truth and help them become more confident. Confident leaders don't hide from their weaknesses. They act on their self-assessments to become better leaders. So in summary, my three key takeaways were confident leaders develop their leadership roadmap. Confident leaders understand their blind spots and confident leaders act on self-assessments. What was your key takeaways from this episode? You can let me know at thecultureofleadership.com or on YouTube. Thanks for joining me. And remember, the best outcome is on the other side of a genuine conversation. Thanks for listening to The Culture of Leadership. You can access the show notes at thecultureofleadership.com. If you enjoy the show, please follow, rate, and give a review on your favorite podcast platform.